We are back with the bull, the bear, my brother's chair. Nate, what's going on today? Today I am bullish. Today you're bullish? All right. Yes. Dude, I'm, I'm bullish about the guest today. Are you? So, yeah, we'll bring All him right. on in a little bit here, but it's uh, the guy's name is Jamie Warden, and he works at Ocean Way Nashville Recording Studios, which is right down in Music Row. You been to Nashville before? Oh, yeah, several times. All right. Yep. So they're a recording studio down there. And they've got a client list of like Blake Shelton, Reba McIntyre, Keith Urban, but they also have like U2, Beyonce. And one of the interesting things that as you look at their website that I'm going to ask them about is, you know, they're obviously Nashville recording studio. You'd assume they do country. Yes. One of their big businesses has been scoring. When I say scoring, what do you think of? Uh, sports. What? I don't know what scoring <laughs> means. <laughs> Movie scores. Like the music okay, behind them. All right. Yeah. That, that term's not <laughs> Now I see where you went with it. The term's not necessarily <laughs> oh, this is going meaningful rough. to me. Well, they also do not only movie soundtracks, but they're big in video games. Like, did they do Top Gun? They did not do Top Gun. Okay, because that, if you haven't seen Maverick, that movie was awesome. Or track me on video games here, though. All right? Video games. Name a video game. Uh, What's the, one of the biggest Call ones Call of Duty. Out? They did that one. Really? Mm-hmm. A I've couple, never played I, I, There's it, like multiple of them, but a couple of them they did. What's another big one all the kids play? Uh, Starts with a fort. Night. Fortnite. They did Fortnite, yes. too. So cool. I also mean, obviously, have never played that. You think about the, you know, the guy's been in the business for 30 years. Think about the evolution of the music business from CDs to digital. Obviously, yep. that messed things up, messes up recording studios. They got to pivot. And think of technology, how easy it is for some guy to record in his bedroom and put it on Instagram. So I'm interested to talk to this guy and ask him a few questions about how they transition and adapt in business because I'm sure the music business is the only one that's been, you know, quote, disrupted by technology. Right. <laughs> yep. So we'll bring him on in a bit. But for now, we'll, let's go what we're bullish and bearish on. Want me to start? Right. Let, let me go first. I'm bullish. Right. I feel like you're going to be bearish. Uh, I'm today bullish. I am. Okay, I am bullish on... Not bullish on inflation, but I am bullish on interest rates. And let me explain myself. Okay. Okay. We've, we've been in a long period of low interest rates. Yeah. Low interest rates typically help which sector of the consumer? The low interest rates help the spenders. The spenders. They're earning money. They're buying houses. They're buying cars. Boats. boats uh, fishing boats. <laughs> surf boats. Like whatever they're doing. They're, so they're they're buying, yes. right? Low interest rates. Loaning, borrowing, and buying. Yeah, I got a home loan a couple years back at 2.9, 30-year fixed. Mm-hmm. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. And now we see rates going to 6% on a 30-year. Yeah. And what's everybody say? Wow, rates are I mean, super high. I mean, sky high. Well, when you look at, in fact, I was talking to a younger person in our office, he's like, well, 6%, so high. Like, I don't know what the average is over... 40 years, but it's probably in that six to seven range. Yeah, the median so probably like, is somewhere average, in six to seven. It's average, but anyone under the age of 40 or 45 has never seen like high interest rates. No, in their adult years, you know, in home buying time of, of 2009 plus, rates have been extremely low. But yes, right. relatively speaking, they're high to then, but median wise, they're not. And you talk, and, the, and the, I, mean, I haven't got to my bullish part yet. Okay. But, you know, you look at a. Because I hope you're not bullish on no, high no, mortgage rates. No, no, no. You look at an interest rate like a mortgage payment at 300000 Yep. At six percent, it's roughly eighteen hundred bucks a month. We're just talking the straight yep. mortgage and principal and interest. Mm-hmm. At three percent, it's twelve sixty five. That's six hundred bucks a month. 
Yeah, so five, a five fifty spring. a month. You talk about gas, right? Let's yep. say you're spending an extra hundred, two hundred bucks a month. Extra tank of gas, uh, right? All of a sudden, yeah, plus doubled. energy and all. You're at an extra thousand bucks a month just for the average person to live. Mm-hmm. Which is, that means you take home a thousand, you make fifteen to eighteen. Like you got to make fifteen to eighteen thousand bucks, right? To pay, right? But here's why I'm bullish on that. Okay, is that retirees for years and years and years when you're trying to make an interest rate on your money and live off it, have been in the opposite position. No, right? I would agree. You go get a, a CD at 50 basis points, like that's not very good. I was lucky if they were 50 you basis points a CD a year today, ago. a two-year, I looked online on the interweb, 2.5%, right? Yeah. It's not six, but right. it's 25 You look at annuity, you look at you know, all the 10-year, which drives a lot of it, right? Interest rates are coming up, which setting aside inflation for a moment because everything's more expensive. If inflation, you know, Kind of calms down a little. Will. There's going to be opportunity, and there is for people to have, you know, interest-bearing vehicles. Yeah, and I would say the retirees too. They're they're not they're not only saving, they're not spending as much. Correct. Their house is what their house is. They're they're they might want to get a new car, but they usually have yeah. one that's drive it for another year and, or two and see what happens. Yeah, they're past the stage of needing that. So I feel vehicle. like we're getting in. I mean, not just from a financial planning, but we're getting into a stage where, like, there will be opportunity for people to say, you know, how can I earn four or 5% on my money right. without taking substantial amounts of risk. Right. And so that's that's a just a period that we haven't seen for so, a long, long time. So also, most retirees that are in Social Security ages will get a lift on Social that. Security, I was actually looking the other day, and I don't know when the Social Security like cost of living stuff remember. comes out, but they were saying at current rates and current inflation and however they calculate it, it'll be somewhere between like 9 and 11%. It was like 7 last year. Yeah, 9 and 11% cost of living. So yeah. There you go. All right. Well, I hear you on that. So I'm going to go bearish, but it's along those lines. And I'm a little bearish on on where the economy itself is headed. Ooh. Well, I mean, not not so much the market. Like, I, I think the stock market maybe has some wiggle room left in it, but I think it's kind of done what it's done. As Binger would say, it's a healthy correction. Yeah. Every, yeah my, my TD Ameritrade account is not so healthy right now. <laughs> but anyway, so... You, you look at, you know, when they do raise interest rates, that's spending. Yeah, sure. My car costs more. My house costs more. But also, who else in this world borrows money to spend? The government. And invest. Government creates the money, I think. But companies, right? Yes. So businesses will borrow. They'll invest in buildings and people and all these things. And if those rates come up, they're not as attractive for them to borrow money and not spend on boats and frivolous things but in right. people. Yeah, and as the Fed raises rates, and that's what they're trying to do. And curb. even the interest rates raising, I mean, has already smashed, not smashed yet, but will smash home prices. Every 1% that interest rates rise, you lose 10% of your buying power on a house. So wow. if I could mortgage at three, and yeah. I was going to buy a half a million dollar house, my 4% mortgage will only afford me a 450. Yeah, so look at your- It's going to come under control. 6%. 1800 bucks mortgage versus 3%, 1265 like yep. $550 per month. And if spending slows, companies slow, borrowing slows, you already have seen the mortgage industry lay people off yes, by tons. the thousands. And I think a lot of that will kind of follow along the way. I think we got a ways before we're kind of out of our, our behaviors. Think about the, the guys and gals that have been full-time in mortgage refinance. The they said they couldn't keep up. Years. Two years like, ago, they said they could not staff enough to do just, it. Now it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yep. And overnight, I think it was one of the major banks, I think, just cut 1,000 people yeah. last week. I mean, week. that was like a 
60-day period mm-hmm. where it went from refi to, to rates are going up. Yeah, so I do think that we're in a, in a bit of an... Uh, we're going to kind of have a long pull through the uh, economy here. That's just my thought. Healthy correction. You can call it a healthy correction. I think, you know, to that point, it shouldn't be a surprise. You go out and look at, you can't find, you know, a boat to buy yeah. or a house to buy. You look at some of the stocks. Remember in 2021, right, pandemic, yeah. all of a sudden, or 2020, all of a sudden electronic, you know, everyone's going to go electronic, digital. Yeah. I mean, Zoom, DocuSign, all those went, they were up, I don't know. 60, 80, 150%. Right. Not because of revenue, just because of the, now their revenue increased, but the thought process, oh, everyone's going to go digital, which is true. It's kind of like the electric car thing we talked about years, or uh, back on an earlier show. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, we're energy independent. We're all this. Like, no, we're not. It all gets hyper inflated, like mm-hmm. way before things even show up. Right. And so you can also, you know, I guess you, you can't complain too hard. You can't get too bearish on this topic. Because you have enjoyed a fairly Correct. decent economy for 10 years. Yep. So if we get a, what Binger calls a healthy correction, yes. you got to kind of put it all in perspective. I can't just look at this here. I agree. It's going to take us some time. As Binger says again, we're going to grind through it. <laughs> we're going to grind higher from here, hopefully. Oil spring. Grind higher. <laughs> Very good. Well, Nate, I'm going to take, since I'm a music buff here, I want Jamie Ward's really, interview today. Yeah. <laughs> Scoring. <laughs> all right. You just get out of here. Let me get Jamie in. All right. Yeah. Well, great. Happy to bring on Mr. Jamie Warden, who is the operations coordinator from Oceanway Nashville Recording Studios, which is in the heart of Nashville's famous music row. And they are one of the world's finest recording studios. And if you look at their client list, you'll see people like Blake Shelton, Reba McIntyre, Keith Urban, Kenny Chesney, the, the who's who of Nashville, you know, outside of that, you see names like U2, Celine Dion, Beyonce was even in there. And then one of the things we'll get to is kind of how their business has shifted from not only music, but to, to other types of recording and scoring in there. Now, Jamie, we appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now you've been in this, uh, the music business. So the business side of music for what, over 30 years now? Right at, uh, yeah, a little over 30 years, my first job, quote unquote, where I got paid to do something with music was I was still in high school. Okay. So I was actually uh, working at a music retail store that sold musical instruments, and they had a rental department where we rented out gear on the weekends, so, you know, different people who wanted to do events. So on the weekends, I ran the rental department. Got it. And you've, you've come a long way from the rental department because I know you work in record label operations, sales distribution, artist management, live events, <clears throat> and you yourself have worked with some of those names I mentioned like Bon Jovi and Curtis Mayfield and you too, and a lot of those projects that have come through there. What was your transition to what attracted you to and kind of how did you transition into you know this level of the music business? Well, I mean, initially early on, I had a love for music all, you know, from I'm guessing since I was six years old, I distinctly vaguely remember the day Elvis died and watching television and seeing all the news stories. And I asked my mom, I said, mom, you know, who was Elvis? What is this? Why is everybody so upset? Right. 
And, uh, you know, she was telling me about it. And, of course, you watch all the news and you hear the performances. And that year for Christmas, um, I got some Elvis 45s. Okay. Um, and that was the first, quote, unquote, music I owned. And ever since then, I just started listening and consuming as much music as I could. And, you know, went down the rabbit hole and listened to a lot of different genres, lot genres of music and different artists and just always wanted to find out as much as, I could about music, and then probably about the time I was in 11th or 12th grade, I decided that I wanted to actually try to be in the music business for a living because, you know, just, you know, through different things, I'd, you know, obviously knew or heard enough about the business at that point and knew that potentially could be a viable career and found out about a couple of schools that actually had music business programs, so I actually went to college for music business. Oh, cool. Okay, so you were committed at a fairly young age. Most people in senior year in high school aren't, aren't let's just say, not quite sure of their future. <laughs> Correct. Correct. If we ever yeah. are, right? And I will say I'm, I'm very fortunate and blessed in that regard because I knew at a very early age and just and just went after it. Sure, sure. Now, I know you joined, I think it was uh, Ocean Way in 2018, which, you know, from everything Correct. I've heard is one of the, most reputable, famous, I mean, obviously your list of, of clients and artists that have recorded there is beyond impressive. You live in a, a city and you guys exist and operate in a city where I got to imagine there's a million recording studios. What's something that, how does Ocean Way separate themselves from every other competitor out there? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of different things that make um, a studio successful. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's, you know, having the building, having the space, having the gear, the equipment, um, you know, all of the stuff to actually physically record the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but above and beyond that, I think it, it, it really comes down to the staff and the people because you can have the most expensive equipment in the world. And if you don't have you know, knowledgeable, good staff to know how to run it. It doesn't matter. Right. Sounds like my golf. And then, and and then on the business side, if you don't have a good team of people actually running the business of the studio, um, and taking care of the client's needs from a customer service viewpoint or standpoint, um, you know, you know, that's just as equal as having staff that can actually go in and actually facilitate the session. You know, you also have to have, you know, people on the other side of it actually running the day-to-day business of the studio. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're a service-oriented business, and our job is serving the clients, mm-hmm. who is the labels and the artists who come here to record. Mm-hmm. So it's doing what you say, follow through, all, all the good old things that businesses uh, that used to do really well? <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I feel, you know, we, we have a reputation of going above and beyond. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as serving the clients, um, we do have, you know, very high end, high quality, you know, gear. A lot of it's vintage gear that's not necessarily as easy to come across anymore. And then we have, we're fortunate enough to have, you know, full time tech staff who can maintain and, and keep the gear and all the equipment running. Sure. Um, you know, you know, which, you know, which is a huge undertaking. A lot of people don't think about when they get in the studio business, right? You know, how do you actually keep a 40 year old analog console running and where do you get parts for it? And <laughs> you, know, you actually have to know somebody who knows how to work on those parts or change out the parts and that kind of stuff. So it's, 
it's a lot of you know moving parts and and behind the scenes that a lot of people never see. Got it. Now you mentioned forty fives with Elvis. You mentioned them Correct. starting in the you know nineties with the kind of Nashville boom music the way music was distributed back then and the music industry as a whole was a bit different than it is today. Talk Correct. about kind of your experience and how, you know, how, how that business has changed and how, how the artists themselves had to pivot and look at their business. Yeah. The, so the record business um, started off as a physical product um, where you're basically recording music onto some sort of tangible physical piece of product. So originally it was, you know, LPs, 45s, then it became cassette tapes, you know, eight tracks, and then, you know, CDs came around in the late Mm eighties. So, but even then it was always a physical piece of product. Right. Um, So record labels, you know, would basically record artists. They would put out physical albums regardless of the format, but they were still selling a physical piece of product. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the artists and record labels revenue, you know, was made for, you know, 50 plus years in the music business where people were literally buying a physical piece of product. Yep. Once um, the digital, you know, technology caught up with, you know, exploded and, you know, kind of took over the music industry and streaming yep. became, the preferred method of consuming music, um, you know, physical sales gradually went away. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like they slammed the door and they just almost went away overnight. Right. Um, and then everything transitioned from a physical business to a streaming business. And the, and the biggest difference with, you know, streaming versus physical is you're no longer buying a physical piece of product, right? You're basically paying a subscription fee, um, for access to actually listen to the music, right? You're no longer buying 10, 14 songs. You're maybe buying one. Well, and, and it's actually, you're not even necessarily buying one. You're <laughs> right. For what, for what you, for what you would pay to buy one album, you're paying for a monthly subscription to go listen to thousands of songs a month. Right. And so obviously so, that had a drastic impact on <clears throat> on the artists who were used to selling, you know, platinum, double platinum, million CD sales in a couple of weeks, like all, all the old things that used to happen to now their, you know, revenue from the music sale, let's just say, is, is has to be much lower. How did they pivot or what, wh- how do they still, you know, maximize their revenue in that business? Right. Well, from the revenue standpoint, um, the industry literally, uh, so the industry had stayed the same as far as how it made revenue for decades. Mm -hmm. And then seemingly overnight, the revenue model was flipped upside down. So it, it took the industry probably 10 plus years to wrap their head around, okay, physical product is not the way we're going to make money. It's going to be digital. It's going to be streaming. How do we adjust and adapt and transition and figure out how to make money in that new model and economy? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the industry itself did not figure this out overnight. It's taken, you know, 10 plus years and it's still an ongoing, you know, challenge for the industry to figure out how to monetize, you know, 
every type of streamed or recorded music once somebody consumes it because you know it, it basically comes down to you know when something is recorded you're basically recording some sort of copyrighted work mm-hmm. so anytime that you are basically consuming or using a copyrighted work the owner of the copyright has to get money for that right so that ie has been the songwriters for decades right so the songwriters took a huge hit um, because they made money every time physical product was sold yep mm-hmm. because the labels had to pay them to put their songs on the physical product. So that's one of the largest revenue streams that went away. The other revenue stream that kind of went away from the artist standpoint, you know, is an artist would get a royalty also for the sale of that product. Mm -hmm. If it was the artist release, the artist would get a royalty. So now that there's no, for the most part, no quote unquote physical sales. Now everybody is trying to figure out, the best way to get as much revenue as they can from a subscription, a monthly subscription fee. So basically I'm paying $14.95 a month to Spotify for a family plan. So everybody in my family can listen to Spotify. Mm -hmm. So basically that $14.95 has to be divided up among all the record labels, all the artists, all the songwriters, all the music publishers, so you're basically having the entire industry trying to get, you know, a part of a monthly subscription as opposed to literally getting attributed you know, to this as getting, yours. As, right. And, as, and, and usually in the past they were getting dollars per physical product that was sold. Right. Now they're getting fractions of pennies per stream. Now I got to imagine that, you know, as, as, as technology disrupted that business as it has blockbuster as it has you know taxi cabs i mean you, you name it technology everything changes everything. everything i got to imagine that with the the way things are now the way me and you are talking wasn't available then either how did the technology you know technology affect the recording industry and you know showing up at a physical location when i could have good enough gear in wyoming to record and send you guys the tracks right um, you know, the recording industry has had, you know, a couple of different challenges over the year with technology. One, what you just mentioned, where the actual physical process of recording, you know, has gotten a lot easier where someone can sit in their bedroom mm-hmm. and make beats or actually, you know, record a song. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the that part of the process where recording studios are having to compete with every one who can go out and, you know, play an instrument or learn how to actually run the recording software can potentially record something. Right. Um, the difference is that doesn't mean it's going to be good. <laughs> <It doesn't, laughs> I would imagine. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's going to sound good. Um, and there have been, you know, hit records, especially in hip hop mm. uh, that have been made in people's, you know, on a, on a laptop, mm-hmm. um, and beats that, you know, multi-platinum artists have had recorded and programmed on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a place for that. Um, but there's also a magic that happens when you have live musicians in a room feeding off of each other. And the, once the, the quote unquote 
untangible magic happens where you have, you know, you have a happy accident and all of a sudden that becomes it's all right. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the untangible part of having professional musicians in a room and, you know, this, the, the magic and the creativity that happens when, when people come together. Right. Which is, um, which is almost kind of foreshadowing today's work environment of all, you know, right. virtual work versus face to face. That's, that's the one thing that, you know, that, you know, working, they call it, you know, in the box, you know, somebody's working on a laptop or recording, you know, in a laptop or mixing in a laptop, you know, mm -hmm. where people can do that and, you know, isolate themselves and not be, you know, in the presence of other creatives, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's where you lose some of the magic. You lose some of, for lack of a better word, you know, the vibe or the feel or, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of, and a lot of music today is, it's programmed and it's, you know, here's a grid and you put your drum track on the grid and everything's perfect and everything's in complete sync and everything's in time. And it has a very certain feel and, you know, it, it can sound great or it can also sound very sterile. Right. Um, where if you go back to music of, you know, the last 40, 50 years where musicians were playing it, sometimes, you know, the vibe or the feel is, the drummer and the bass player being slightly behind the groove and not in front of the groove or on the groove and just, you know, the nuances of, of a live musician and a live person, right. You know, that's the part of it that that's, that's never going to be lost, you know, and what makes the studio great. Right. They're not just sending in their individual pieces and piling them together. It's the, the guy played one chord. Another guy said, that's, that's the one do it again. And there, there becomes the, the game changer in the song. Or do it fifteen more times. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. right. Now, now you guys, you know, let's, which was I, I found extremely interesting, is you know you have, gosh, Ken, like I said, Kenny Chesney, three doors down. You you guys run the gamut of famous people, genres of music, all those. But then you have on your website a section that is on scoring, and Correct. when I think of scoring. You know, you initially think of movie scoring, which you guys have done a uh, Taken movie. Uh, you, uh, you have more movies than I could scroll through that you've done scoring for in your studio. But you also had another interesting category that I personally never thought of. Talk about what, what you guys are doing there. So, you know, a transition that we intentionally, or excuse me, not a transition, but a market that we intentionally uh, went after uh, here at the studio, you know, 10 plus years ago. And that was in part uh, largely due to the vision of Pat McMakin, who's the director of operations here at the studio. He and a couple of other clients uh, basically had the vision to go after the scoring market. Mm -hmm. And you're like, and you're like, what is the scoring market? <laughs> and, and, and it's, and it's everything that you just said. It's, it, it's film, it's TV. Um, the other market that you were you know, alluding to is video games. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it could be anything and everything in between. So, you know, we slowly started, you know, getting a couple of clients, you know, hey, come try out the studio, come try out Nashville. And, you know, initially, you know, there was a stereotype of Nashville that most people would immediately think of, you know, well, nothing comes out of Nashville, but country. <laughs> right. 
um, or Christian music, but you know, they, you know, Nashville was not what they would think of when you think of scoring. Mm-hmm. So in the past, in the history of, you know, the music business, most scoring was done either in New York or LA, sure. um, or in, uh, England at Abbey road, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where the Beatles recorded. So, um, so the blessing we have here at ocean way, um, and you alluded or mentioned this earlier is, you know, we are an old, the facility or building we're in is an old church. Mm-hmm. Um, and our large studio room, studio a is actually the old sanctuary of that church. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty large room and we were fortunate enough to where, um, we were basically just one of the largest spaces here in Nashville from an actual tracking room or recording studio. And you can easily get, you know, 40 to 50 orchestra players in that room at one time. Mm-hmm. And most, you know, studio spaces can't accommodate that many people. Plus we have a very high ceiling. Um, the room is, you know, acoustically treated and it just sounds good mm-hmm. acoustically when you have, either a band playing in there or you have an orchestra playing in there. So we slowly started, you know, intentionally going after that market and was able to, you know, do some work with, you know, EA sports and Sony PlayStation and, you know, now a lot of other video game companies like Bungie and stuff like that. And so in addition to, you know, doing scoring for video games, you know, we're actually picking up, you know, more and more movie scores and different stuff like that. Cause for the most part, a lot of the movie scores are still done in LA. Sure. Um, but we've done, um, I think one of the biggest feature films that we did was the Tom Hanks Greyhound movie, which is a world war two movie. So you yeah. can imagine, you know, the audio and the score and the, the cinematic orchestration that went along with that. Um, we also did the movie about Kurt Warner, I saw that, um, which was, which was a pretty Brit, pretty big, theatrical release, you know, considering it was a, basically a budget or an indie movie. Right. Um, so we did that score here. Um, and we've slowly transitioned into doing stuff for Netflix. We've done stuff for Amazon, you know, we've done some stuff, you know, for NBC universal and different clients like that. So it's, you know, kind of once you start going down that path, you know, we've ended up, you know, picking up other clients other than just, sure. you know, video game companies. Easy for you guys you know, to like, say. It just, you just go down that yeah, path and then boom, just PlayStation's yeah, in we, your office. <laughs> we, we just snapped our finger. To yeah, of course. Even on the indie side of things or, you know, the not, not the quote unquote major movie production company, we've done a lot of stuff for Netflix. Yep. Um, one of the coolest things I think we've done for Netflix is we did all of the score for the Lost in Space series. Oh, cool. You know, which is science fiction. It's got a lot of you know, orchestration mm-hmm. and cinematic stuff. You know, in you know, helping tell the story of you know the show. And you know, that's one of the, in my opinion, one of the cooler projects that we've got to do here. That's you know something current and fresh, and you know, also helps you get you know new clients because that's right. that's been a big success. So you know, what's the, the business adage, you know, success breeds success. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, so when you can tell people you've done a Fortnite or Beyonce, you know, a lost in space, <laughs> or lost in space, you know, that, that, that gives you credit right. in that world. And then, you know, our music history speaks for itself. Right. Um, music but we, history. But we've gotten enough, we've gotten enough video games. We've gotten enough film score and enough music where, 
you know, we have a good reputation and we've been able to maintain that. Right. And, uh, you know, hopefully continue to do so for years to come. Now touch on this. You guys, I would imagine ocean way, any, any studio that's top of their game has extremely passionate people about the music business. I mean, look at your story, right? And so it's one thing to say, well, when the, you know, life hands you lemons, make lemonade, or you got to adapt, or you know all the things that you hear out in the all the you know, classic, pick your analogy out there. But unfortunately, there's people involved in these changes, right? So when all of a sudden you're going to score a movie, and and you've been you know working with the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whoever for 20 years, does any any of the people inside there struggle with that shift? Of wait a minute, um, we're music people. What are we doing here? I don't know that I've seen that struggle per se. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, in Nashville, a lot of the music that's recorded is quote unquote country music. So, you know, there's a lot of studios in town that do country and other genres of music. So, you know, there is definitely a network or a circuit of you know, first and second and third call musicians who basically make a living and they're playing in a different studio five days a week. Sometimes they're playing in two different studios in the same day. Got it. Mm-hmm. That still happens where musicians are, you know, going from place to place, recording different things for different artists. Sure. Um, I think the one thing that's happened here um, is because we've transitioned and started doing more orchestration and score that's given a lot of the players who their primary source of revenue may have been the national symphony or, you know, something similar to that. Mm -hmm. We've actually given, given them, you know, potentially the opportunity to make more money because now there's more work Mm -hmm. coming to Nashville that actually, um, you know, is outside of, you know, you know, bass drums, guitars, keys, you know, so, um, you know, and, you know, when you've got a 45 piece orchestra on something that's, you know, there's the more work that, you know, so anytime we have a huge session here, you know, in the past where we might be, you know, have eight or 10 musicians on employment, you know, from the label or, you know, the producer client, whoever that day, now there mm. potentially could be 40 to 50 musicians in here. So right. I think we've not necessarily gotten a lot of resistance i don't think from the musicians because we've actually provided them a a new outlet of revenue right which in in this economy in the music business you know you have to have more than one revenue stream jamie what else are you what else do you do in your spare time and obviously you must pour hours into this job and career and all those things what what's what's a good outlet for you what do you do in your spare time you know, in addition to you know obviously working here and you know and teaching at belmont you know i'm also a husband, a father, so I have, you know, family kids, you know, family responsibilities, but one of my side projects that I have been, you know, passionately working on for the last year or so is I'm getting ready to launch an actual podcast. Nice. Uh, here for the studio. It's called, it's going to be called, it's going to be great, the Ocean Way podcast, and it's going to be great is kind of the slogan we have around here at the studio. Mm-hmm. And when something is going great, you can literally say it's going to be great. Or when it's a train wreck <laughs> and you and you see the train wreck coming and there's nothing you can do about it, 
sometimes all we can do is say it's going to be great. <laughs> so <laughs> just repeat that, it five times is, to yourself. <laughs> it's going to be great. Right. It's going to be great. Tap cool. your tap your red shoes together. But um, what so kind of things are you going to do on the show? So I've been working on putting that together. So it's basically going to be telling the story of Oceanway Studios through either the artists that record here, the engineers and producers that work here, or even record label people. So basically, it's going to be a story or it's going to be a podcast talking about the story of the studio through all of our clients. Cool. Very cool. So my, my first guest was Derek St. Holmes, who used to be the singer for Ted Nugent. Yeah. Um, I've had several blues artists like Eric Gales, Joe Bonamassa. I've had bluegrass artists uh, like Rhonda Vincent, who is the you sure. know current queen of bluegrass. Yeah. Um, and then I've got several uh, producers lined up to come on board who've worked with some of the biggest artists and names in history. And you know, it's going to be a, a fun podcast for me because I literally get to sit down and talk about music with some of my favorite people. Yeah. No, it's a cool outlet. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Glad you're getting into it. And the, the, what's the show? Is it's called? It's going to be great. Name of the podcast is "It's Going to Be Great," the Oceanway National Podcast. Awesome. We'll we'll check that out on iTunes, Spotify. I'm sure it'll hit all the. Uh, I'm sure it'll get faster reach than mine does. <laughs> you never know. Now, uh, two last questions for you. Sure. One. Now you, you've 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 obviously you work at a world class recording studio you get to see all kinds of you know musicians and doing something that you love you'd have what what some starting out in your business would would call a dream job what what do you think are the characteristics that got you to where you are what what's helped you along the way i think um and i well i've, I've got a couple of things that though a couple of ways i can answer that you know, first um, let me give you a little bit of a, a backstory where, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, when just kind of glossing over, you know, my bio, I've done a lot of different things in the music industry. And I think part of, you know, my longevity has been the ability to transition and adapt and move into different positions as the industry changed. Mm-hmm. Because for, you know, 20 years, I was. I was the guy selling physical product. I was the guy going to Walmart, going to Target, you know, going to places like that, selling CDs. Mm-hmm. So that whole business model, you know, went away at the end of 08. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when that happened, um, I transitioned into, you know, live events and working as a booking agent. And I was, you know, working with some artists on the side, doing some management things, you know, eventually transitioned into teaching uh, music business at Belmont University, and then also from that, you know, transitioned into actually helping run the studio here. So, I mean, part of it to answer your question is being able to adapt and adjust with the industry as the industry changes. Just you know, being able to, for lack of a better word, reinvent myself sure. as, as as I've had to do that, and you know, and and the industry as a whole in my opinion, has to do that. The industry's had to reinvent itself as far as the financial side of it. The artists have had to reinvent themselves as far as how they reach their audience. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were younger and when I was younger, you heard about somebody on TV or the radio and you would read something in a magazine. Now artists are basically having to be experts at social media. Right. 
Right. Because 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 that's how they reach their audience. Right. So you know the entire industry has had to shift and adjust and change you know to, and adapt to stay current with what's happening you know in the industry as a whole. But that's been one of the biggest you know things that's you know helped me is I've had the ability to adapt and adjust and shift and change as needed. The other thing, and you know, this is something I tell my students at Belmont when I teach, your knowledge of the business can get you in the door. Your personality will keep you in the door. Nice. Because, you know, I, you know, my knowledge could get me in a lot of different places, but if I'm not, you know, from my personal, you know, code of ethics, if I'm not being an ethical person or trying to be fair and honest and work, you know, as hard as I can and do the best, you know, possible job for the client. You know, if I'm not doing my best, then you're not going to last very long. And it's, you know, going above and beyond. And, and the music industry um, as a whole is a service industry as far as the people in the business, because we're serving our clients who are the ones making the music. And then the music business as a whole is a luxury mm-hmm. because we're competing with, you know, high gas prices we're competing with inflation you know in in 08 when the economy tanked i was literally selling cds and i knew things were going to get pretty rough when i was having to go into a retail store and try to convince them to buy some cds and they were basically telling me their customer was either having to decide if they were going to buy a gallon of milk a gallon of gas or a cd right it's like the cd is going to lose every time right Right. But the the good thing that's happened, you know, and a lot of people in the industry are, you know, loathe technology and the way the industry has shifted and changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel it's actually as a whole been better for the industry because now as a music fan myself, I can consume more music now than I ever could. Right. Not just what the label is um, feeding you. You can find it all right. over the place. And, and it's also not cost prohibitive, cross prohibitive to actually you know, consume music in the right. past, you were also limited to what I can afford to go buy. Totally. Well, now, now I'll, now I'll pay my monthly subscription gladly and go listen to anything and everything I think of. Totally. Um, so that part of it, you know, is to me is all positive. Um, but as far as, you know, getting back to your original question, you know, I think it's having the right mindset, the right attitude. Um, it is a privilege to be in this business. Um, it's a luxury to be in this business. The fact that people are still, you know, consuming music, that's always a positive thing. So it's just, you know, it's up to us to figure out how to adjust and adapt and and make it work. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, well said. Last question. This is just as the selfish music fan of mine and I appreciate all the time you've given me, but what has been one of your favorite surreal experiences in that studio? I mean, you've obviously seen all kinds of things, but what was one of those times where you're just like, man, this is, this is surreal. Uh, there's been a couple of things. Uh, and a lot of it just hundred percent goes back to my personal preferences in music. Sure. I like traditional old school country. Yep. Um, so like, you know, I grew up on Waylon and Willie and all of that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of that type of country I like, but I'm, I'm an old school rock and blues guy. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so we've had, you know, people come in, um, you know, Bon Jovi was here, um, yeah. at one point making a record and, you know, 
the era that I grew up, everybody listened to Bon Jovi. So, you know, it was cool for me and fun for me to sit and talk to him for five minutes. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, and I had actually worked at, you know, Polygram Group Distribution back in the 90s, which was his music distributor. So we actually chatted about that. Sure. You know, cool. and, and chatted about some of the same people we knew. So it was, it's cool getting to talk to <clears throat> artists, you know, j- even if it's for five minutes, you totally. know, I've got to have conversations with, with, with Bon Jovi. I've got to have conversations with, you know, some of the guys in Leonard Skinner. I've got cool. to, you know, I got to sit and talk for probably 30 minutes one day to Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Yeah. And to me, that was surreal. Cause I mean, he was, he had literally just got back into the U.S. after COVID because he was, you know, stuck in another country. Yeah. We were just—I mean, we weren't even talking about music. We were sitting there talking about COVID and right. you know what's Nashville doing with COVID and you know, hey, I've been stuck in Italy for a year, right. <laughs> you know. So, so just some of the conversations and some of the things you get to be a part of. That, you know, that's where you get to to pinch yourself some days and it's like I can't believe I'm I get paid to come sit here um, get paid to come sit and talk to the guys from Leonard Skinner or no kidding no kidding awesome well congrats on your success Jamie and I sincerely appreciate all the time you spent with us here today and for coming on the show so uh, next time I'm in Nashville I'll I'll look you up and knock on the door I'll be like some weird guys at the door asking for you and be like time to go away (laughs) not a problem we'll say hello Very good, Jamie. Well, I appreciate all your time today. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks much.